Uh, Daniel chapter number 10 is where we're at tonight. And uh, I mean, it's kind of interesting here with the chapter that we're on tonight after uh, on Sunday we looked at prayer. And we're going to be looking at prayer again tonight a little bit. And honestly, I don't plan this out. I just let the Lord put it together because I'm not much of a planner. And if I tried to plan it, I'd mess it up. But anyway, so I thought that was interesting that these, these kind of went together. But uh, as we're looking at Daniel chapter number uh, 10 tonight, just a little bit of uh, review before we get started because, well, that's what I always do. Creature of habit too, right? And so anyway, uh, what we've looked at at Daniel so far, the first six chapters was kind of telling us about Daniel's choices and his character and his earlier life and kind of giving us a background behind the prophet and how he came to be the one that God used to reveal all this stuff to us today. And so in those first six chapters, we find him being a faithful servant of God, a man of dedication, a man of principle. Uh, from a very early age, he made decisions that he was going to do things God's way, no matter if no one else did. And whenever it came time for uh, God to use him at different things, he was willing to uh, say uncomfortable things to very important people uh, without really the fear or favor of men. We find that whenever he was revealing these dreams to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, some of the things that he had to say wasn't very flattering. And many of the false prophets we find through the Old Testament, uh, they would come to the kings and they would flatter and they would give favorable things and they would lie to, uh, to promote themselves. But Daniel instead uh, told the truth, even if it was something that could potentially get him in trouble. He did what was right, even if it was something that would get him in trouble. He got through in the lion's den, even as an old man, because he would do what was right. But he had lived such a way that whenever he did get through in the lion's den, the king didn't like the fact that he had to do it. He had to get tricked into doing it. And so Daniel is just a, a huge example for us of faithfulness, of integrity, of godly living, and the way that God takes care of his people whenever they live by, uh, by God's word, by God's principles, and remain faithful. And that God does take care of his own, and he took care of Daniel. He prospered him. He promoted him. He protected him. And uh, then we come all the way to the end of his life, and God is revealing some great things to him. And I've said this before, I want to bring this out again, because just casually reading through Daniel, we put these things all bunched up together. They're just kind of piled together, like Daniel's life was just one huge uh, thing after another, one great big revelation after another. But instead, we find that all of the incidents that we find in uh, the book of Daniel are spread out over a 70-year period. And so uh, all of these events uh, aren't all mashed together. Instead, we're finding uh, years or sometimes decades between main events, between uh, God speaking to him, between dreams or revelation or prophecy. There's long spans of time in between that. And the reason I keep bringing that out is a lot of times for us in the Christian life, especially uh, where we're at today, we like things to be action-packed. We like things to be full, and we think if things aren't going back-to-back -back one after another, if we're not seeing a huge step, a big breakthrough, something uh, huge in our lives happening back-to-back, uh, -back, we feel as if there's something wrong. Uh, whenever we're thinking about growth and we're talking about uh, growing in our walk with God and God revealing things to us and uh, God working in our lives, it's almost as if we want a constant flow. But we see in a man like Daniel, someone who God used mightily that God was with, and we find repeatedly in the book of Daniel that it was he was a man that was loved by God, beloved of God, favored by God, but yet it wasn't boom, 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 one thing after another. It was him walking sometimes in silence for long periods of time. It was not silence as in like he took a vow of silence, but that God wasn't really doing anything in his life at that period of time. And then whenever it came time, whenever God was ready, he showed him what he needed to show him. And then it would dry up for a little while, and then God would show him something else. And then you see that pattern kind of going on in Daniel's life. And so I bring this out to bring us a little bit of perspective 
that if the prophet Daniel was that way with God, I'm not saying that God wasn't leading and guiding him in his daily life and giving him direction and encouraging him in different things, but it's all of the big things. Uh, Daniel would have had so many days, so many weeks, so many months, so many years that were just putting one foot in front of another. Just another day, just another year, just uh, another decade even of faithfulness. And God would occasionally put a little extra in there. Does that make sense to everybody? And so as we're looking at this here, we find in this last half of Daniel that whenever he was up in years, uh, most of these things are happening late in life. Most of these things are happening whenever he is old. So this shows the benefits and the privileges of a long faithfulness to God. We don't find a lot of uh, a lot of God's blessings and benefits being front-loaded into Christianity. Okay? And so he had a long faithfulness, a long walk with God, and with that, it was like the longer he got, the closer he was to God, and the more God entrusted him with. Because it is a relationship, isn't it? And so the more you get to know someone, the more time you spend with someone, the closer you become to someone, the more things that you're going to entrust them with, right? And that's kind of what it seems like here. And so if we, uh, if we faint, the Bible says when we faint in the day of adversity, our, our strength is small, right? But if we faint, if we bow out, if we grow weak, if we quit, we are going to miss out on so many of the blessings and benefits of faithfulness. And that's, that's where I think a lot of Christians uh, really miss the boat because whenever things get a little bit difficult, whenever the way gets a little bit rough, whenever they have times of darkness, they're not seeing the daylight, they're not seeing God move as they want Him to, uh, the things in their life isn't going according to the, the way they think they should, then that's whenever they abandon God. Whenever, honestly, if they would just uh, weather the storm, keeping their eyes on the Lord, trusting Him to bring them through it, that the blessings and the fruitfulness lay on the other side of that. Okay? Uh, from a pastor's perspective, I wonder how many pastors and how many preachers uh, quit in those valleys right before God's getting ready to do something big. I wonder how many ministries have been abandoned uh, whenever God had a long-term goal in mind because things weren't happening in the first few years whenever God was expecting things to happen in about year 20, right? Just a few thoughts there. And so in this second half of Daniel, uh, God has revealed to Daniel uh, how things are going to unfold from Daniel's time until the Lord's second coming. Uh, he showed him all these different empires through these visions of beasts. And so he was getting a view of what kind of empires they were going to be, their characteristics, uh, their strengths, their weaknesses, their longevity, things like that. And all the way up to the Roman Empire, where it was going to be revived, it was going to be under the leadership of the Antichrist, and Christ would finally come, put down the uh, empire of Satan, basically, and Christ was going to set all things right and was going to rule and reign. And uh, finally, uh, man's cries for justice was going to be taken care of. You know, all the Christians and all of the martyrs who are crying out how long, and Christ is going to put an end to that. And he is going to put all evil under his feet. But that was going to be for a long period of time. We saw after that where um, uh, power was going to change from the east to the west, from the Persians to the Greeks and then to the Romans, and how that was going to come about, and uh, Alexander the Great and his conquests and different things. And so all of these things were important uh, to Daniel and to Daniel's people, to the Jews, because they were going to be ruled over by these empires. Uh, from that time on, even though they wanted to get out of captivity, they were going to still not be, uh, they were still not going to be their own sovereign nation. Under uh, Roman, excuse me, under Rome at the time of Christ, even today, they, Israel is seen as a sovereign nation, but does it really have its sovereignty? Today, as a nation, Israel is constantly being pressured and manipulated and coerced, and they have so much pressure from still Europe today, right, of how they're going to be interacting with all lands around them, 
How many times have they given up land for peace deals at the pressure of the United States and of Europe? And so even today, Israel doesn't have that strength, doesn't have that vitality, doesn't have that sovereignty that they're seeking for, and it's not going to come until Christ. And so we saw that with the, the ram and the, the goat, and then we saw the 70 weeks, and that's what we looked at last week, that 70 weeks were determined. It was weeks of years, and we saw that uh, the first seven weeks that uh, Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt. Its walls and its streets would be rebuilt even in troublous times. After those seven weeks, those 49 years, uh, one of the reasons why that's significant, by the way, is that after 49 years, the 50th year in the Old Testament, according to the law, was the year of Jubilee. You want to remember that? Okay, so 49 years, 50th year, whenever uh, the city is rebuilt and the walls are up and all the year of Jubilee. Okay, and so then after that, uh, there was going to be an additional... Uh, I forget the number of years. It came up to 483 altogether. And... That was when the Messiah would be cut off. They figured up the math because uh, the Daniel recorded in his word or in God's word uh, beginning point and ending point, and it brings us right to the time that Jesus was crucified, and the Jews missed it. God gave them down to the week when that was going to happen, and they missed it. And between the time that the Lord was cut off and the end. There is an undetermined amount of time. That's the church age which we are in. And then we're going to have the 70th week. And that is the seven-year tribulation. Remember, these 70 weeks was God's dealing with his nation Israel. Right now, God's not dealing with his nation Israel. He's kind of set them on the shelf, if you will. He's not doing a whole lot of any... God's hand's still there. He's still... Uh, defending them against the Palestinians. He's still, because he loves them, he's merciful to them. But for right now, he is revealing himself to the world through the church, not through Israel. After the church is out of here at the rapture, he's going to turn back to Israel. He's going to be working through them. And that's that 70th uh, week that we talked about last week. And so this week we come to chapter number 10, and we find Daniel as an old prophet, and he is troubled by many, many things. Because if we look here at the very first uh, verse here, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar, and the, um, and the thing was true, and the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had uh, understanding of the vision. So it gives us a point in time here. It's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And the significance of that is that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, we find that the order was given out for the people of Israel uh, to return back to Jerusalem. Captivity was over. That was the 70th year. And Cyrus, that was prophesied by, I believe it was Isaiah, uh, came to the throne, came to power, and he ordered that the Jews could go back and re-inhabit Jerusalem. They could go ahead and start rebuilding the temple. And so that, uh, that was what was going on at this time. Daniel would have been around 85 years old, and he would have loved to have went back to Jerusalem, but he was too old. Babylon was a long ways from Jerusalem. It was a long trip, and he was going back to the remnants of a war zone. Uh, the city lie desolate, it lie waste. And even sometime after this, Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and he says the walls are still knocked down, the gates are burnt with fire, the streets are a mess. There was areas that he couldn't even get through on his animal. He had to climb across. The... That was the kind of conditions that Jerusalem was in. And so Daniel couldn't go back to Jerusalem. However, by this time that this is being written, a lot of the Jews had went back. I say a lot, it would have been a small percentage, but it would have been several tens of thousands of them. The ones who had remained faithful to God, the ones that were still interested in the homeland, but by and large, most of the Jews grew comfortable in Babylon. Many of them had been born in Babylon. 
They had businesses there. They had jobs there. They had homes there. They had had children there. And so many of them had no interest in leaving. But the ones who did had already started. They went on their journey back. And Daniel, in the position that he was in, would have been getting reports back from Israel, from Jerusalem. He would have been hearing about what was going on. He would have been hearing about the conditions of the city, about the living conditions of the people, about how they were uh, overwhelmed with the work, how they were getting discouraged in the way, because they were excited. We finally get to go back to the homeland, and they get back to the homeland, and it is a disaster area, right? They left Babylon in all of its beauty and all of its wonder. Remember in, in Babylon, they had the hanging gardens. They had all these beautiful things. And to go back to Israel, to Jerusalem being lie waste like that, it would have been difficult for them. And so Daniel's hearing about that. He's heard these um, he's heard these prophecies that God has given him, saying that, yes, uh, Israel is going to be re-inhabited. The people will have the land back. The temple is going to be rebuilt, but they're constantly going to have wars. There's constantly going to be fightings. There's going to be enemies that's coming about. There's going to be a couple different uh, kings coming about that are absolute tyrants that's going to uh, come through and massacre the people and desecrate the temple and cause the Jews all sorts of problems, almost as if he's hunting them for sport, because we have Antiochus Epiphanes, we have the Antichrist, and these are guys that Daniel's heard about, and so he knows that uh, these people back in Israel are going to have an extremely difficult road to go. They're going to have to overcome the rubble. They're going to have to overcome all of the work in rebuilding the city. And on top of that, they're constantly going to be surrounded by enemies. They're constantly going to face battles. They're going to be oppressed. They're going to. And so think about this aged prophet. His heart has been on Jerusalem all along. His heart has been on the temple and upon God and upon worship and serving the Lord. And he sees all of these difficulties. The people that he loves is going to face. Uh, the God that he is serving uh, has made promises, but he sees difficulty after difficulty. He's still trying to process all of these things. And then he uh, realizes with all of these uh, all of these prophecies that he's given out that there are so many difficulties that lie ahead of them. But even with as much as he has known, as much as has been revealed, he still doesn't have great understanding of, of the prophecies. So there's so many questions in his mind. Just what he does know is troubling enough, but what he doesn't know is troubling him even more. So he says, okay, God, I've been praying before, uh, wondering if there is a future for Israel. What's going to happen to them? Because I didn't see us ever leaving captivity. Well, you've got us out of captivity. Uh, the city is ready to be rebuilt. People are back in the land. But now I still see problem after problem. God, what in the world's going to happen with us? And so he's troubled with all of this. And so anyway, what we're going to find here in chapter 10 is an introduction to the prophecies that are going to be given to us in chapters 11 and 12. God is going to uh, reveal to Daniel and give him in chapters 11 and 12 extremely detailed prophecies of what's going to happen primarily in the intertestamental period. And what I mean intertestamental between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because we know there's about 400 years of silence between there. That whenever Malachi puts down his pen and completes his writing, there is not a word breathed from God until uh, Zacharias hears from uh, the angel of God in the temple that John the Baptist is going to be born, right? Are we familiar with that part? Okay, so there's about 400 years of silence there in between, and what Daniel's going to receive is basically he's going to get the history book before it happens. God's going to give him step by step and say this is what's going to happen before it happens. And one of the main reasons why God is doing this is to give these people of Israel reassurance and to give them hope and to give them strength through this period, okay? God's going to basically be silent for a while. They're going to be back in the land. They're going to be 
tossed about from empire to empire. There is going to be uh, oppression. There's going to be wars. They're going to feel as if God has forgotten about them. There's going to be no prophets. There's going to be no spoken word. There's going to be no warnings. There's going to be nothing going on. There's going to be silence. They're going to feel like God has forgotten them. And so what God does is he comes to Daniel and he says, let me give you a play-by-play. So as it's going on, they're going to know I'm still in charge. I still have a plan for them. Okay? Something extremely interesting to me about this, okay? And hopefully I can communicate this to you all in an interesting way as well, is these prophecies serve the same purpose as same purpose to the Jews as the book of Revelation serves to the church. And if you look at the two of them, there is a huge parallel between the two of them. Okay? We find that Daniel was an aged prophet right before a time of silence that was going to reveal a message of judgment and of hope to God's people. We find that Revelation was written by an aged apostle, John the Baptist. He would have been probably in his 90s on the Isle of Patmos. He's already had a long life of ministry and of faithfulness, and God is going to reveal to him uh, a time of uh, trouble and of judgment, followed by great uh, reassurance, great hope, great victory. Okay? And so we find that John was the final book of the New Testament, that whenever he closed his, uh, closed his book, whenever he put down his pen, that was the end of Scripture. And for 2,000 years, God has been silent. Now, he speaks through his word. His Holy Spirit works in our heart. He's still calling and drawing men to him. But there hasn't been new revelation. There hasn't been a prophet. There hasn't been an apostle. And so John spelled out what was going to happen throughout this time that we are living in and in God's final times of judgment before he returns to give us reassurance that God's on the throne, that he's in charge, that he has a plan, and he's going to take care of it all in the end. So you see how both of these run side by side, almost parallel between Daniel and Revelation, Daniel's life and John's life. And so I found that extremely interesting as I was looking at these two. And so both Daniel and Revelation reveal times of trouble and testing before Christ rules and reigns. And the end of both of them are basically telling us that that even though it seems at times that evil is winning, that Satan's in charge, that God is silent, that everything is progressing according to his plan, and he already has worked out the victory, and it will happen. And so as we come here to um, chapter 10, let's go ahead. I read the first verse, but let's read the first nine verses. And I went a long time before just reading the the passage here, but hopefully this has got us in the right place. Okay. So chapter 10, verse 1, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true. But the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was uh, by the side of the great river, which is uh, Hittical, It's another word for the Tigris River, okay? You have the Tigris and the Euphrates. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man, clothed in fine linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face was, or his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like the collar of polished brass. And the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his words, 
And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground. And so as we look at this uh, first section here of this chapter, uh, Daniel, as I said, he was an old man and he was faithful. He had lived for God all along and he couldn't make this trip back to Israel. Many people were. And so uh, his heart was with these Jews that had returned. Okay. And he knew that the road before them was difficult. Uh, he was aware of all the prophecies, all these things. And so he was burdened for this people. And so he was so burdened here, it says that he was mourning for three full weeks. And I think these are the things that go together that contribute to his burden that he had to the reason why he was mourning and why he was fasting, why he was praying was for the people, for the fact that the temple was destroyed, for the fact that there was so much difficulty that lay ahead of them, and for the fact of the prophecies that he understood and for the ones that he didn't yet understand. There was just so many things weighing upon him that he felt as if he had to uh, to get serious about this, for lack of other words. And so it's a time of prayer and fasting that he's going through here for all of these burdens upon him, for the people of Israel, for the temple, for the prophecies, for understanding of the things that he had heard. And so... Um, Another thing that contributed to it was it gives us a, a timing on this. It says that it was, um, let's see. Verse number four it says, In the four and twentieth day of the first month, we find out if we read through Scripture, the first month, uh, on the fourteenth day of the month, would have been the Passover, right? And so we, we talked about that some on Sunday as well. And so the first month was when you'd have the Passover, you would have had uh, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread going on. All of these things would have centered around the temple and would have had a focus on the temple. And during this time, the temple was destroyed. Daniel was in Babylon, and there was no way that there could be the Passover lamb, no way there could be a sacrifice, no way they could be feasting and celebrating. There was no temple, there was no priesthood, there was none of that going on. And so this was going to be about the first Passover that the Jews were back in their homeland and Daniel wasn't with them and even if he was, they couldn't celebrate the Passover. And so there's so many factors that are playing into this in Daniel's mind. So imagine him being an 85-year-old man prophet of God, burden for his people, praying for his people, understanding all of these different things that's going on, and it's just heavy upon him. And so he begins fasting and praying for, uh, for all of these things that's going on. And God is taking longer to get his answer to him than what he wants, Right? Imagine fasting, praying for 21 days, not hearing anything, not seeing anything, not uh, not feeling as if it's doing any good whatsoever. That was where Daniel was at. And then at the end of this time, it says, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of this time, it says that there is a vision that comes to him. And he gets a glimpse, what we find here, he gets a glimpse of either Christ or of God, which we can kind of use interchangeably, but from what we find in Scripture, the pattern that we find in Scripture, he gets a glimpse of God. Because if we go back to Isaiah, chapter number six, it says, in the year uh, King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw him on his throne, and he describes and talks about the throne that he's on, and talks about his appearance, talks about fire and angels and cherubim and seraphim and wings and all kinds of stuff going on, right? And so Isaiah, at the beginning of his prophecies, gets a vision of God. He gets to see who's in charge, the one who's ruling all things. He gets perspective before he gets prophecy, right? 
We find the same thing going on for Daniel. He gets to see a sneak peek, a view of God, to get perspective before these prophecies. And these two aren't the only ones. We find also John the Baptist likewise, or not John the Baptist, excuse me, uh, John the Apostle likewise. In the book of Revelation, you go to Revelation chapter number four. He was carried up into the third heaven, and what did he see? He describes what it was like to stand and see God. And so before Revelation was revealed to John, he saw God. You see this happening several times? We find that uh, several of the prophets were that way. Uh, As I was looking at this and studying over it a little bit, uh, God gives a lot of his people uh, a glimpse of himself before he reveals these things to him. Abraham, likewise, whenever Abraham was in a tent in the wilderness, Abraham was a nomad, wasn't he? And so how did God reveal himself to Abraham? A traveler passing through. They had a meal together, and then he told him about what was going to happen to Lot and what was going to happen to Sarah, right? We find that Isaiah, he prophesied before the king. And so he saw Christ... He saw God as a king, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah was a prophet to the king. He stood before King Uzziah. He had a great relationship with King Uzziah, and I think he almost had, uh, I think he put too much importance on King Uzziah. And I think Uzziah had to get out of the way before he could see God high and lifted up. Okay? And so we see these things going on throughout Scripture, and God revealing himself to men according to the capacity that they're at before he's able to reveal what he's going to do. They need to know who he is before they know what he's going to do. That makes sense, doesn't it? And so in this vision that he shows him here, we find a description that's kind of strange. It says that uh, uh, he looked and behold a certain man, verse number 5, he was clothed in linen. Usually we find it talks about either the Lord or about God being clothed in linen, pure and white, clean, right? And so that's a, a picture of purity, uh, whose loins were clothed with fine gold of Euphaz. Purity and power both in that, because we, we see a lot in the Bible about the refining of gold and the taking away of impurities. And so this is... Uh, it says here, fine gold of Euphaz. It wasn't uh, just any gold. It was some of the best gold. Gold also uh, talks of power, of uh, kingship, of ruling, of reigning, those kind of things. It says his body was also like beryl, and his, which is a, another, um, another jewel. His face is appearance of lightning, and his eyes of lamps of fire. So this lightning and these eyes of fire, it's talking about his knowledge, his piercing, his abilities and things. And so we're seeing in all of these descriptions, uh, though we can't lay eyes on God visibly, he is not a visible form. It says that God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so just like you can't visualize a kingdom, remember Daniel had visions of kingdoms, right? And it was a leopard, it was a lion, it was a bear, it was these different things. And so you can't visualize a kingdom, but God was revealing it to Daniel in ways that he could relate to with its individual parts and its individual meanings, okay? And so with this, as God is revealing himself to Daniel, he's seeing all these different things that have meaning to him. It's going to instill in him an understanding of God's character, of God's attributes, okay? So his righteousness, his holiness— the, the brass that we see here is a picture of judgment and of justice. And so it's all of God's attributes rolled into one here. And it says that his voice was as a multitude. Because, if nothing else, in the beginning was the word, right? All knowledge, all understanding, all wisdom comes from him. And so just the idea of the word, it's knowledge, it's understanding. And so in verse 7 it says, Daniel alone saw the vision that the men that were with him didn't see it. Doesn't seem like necessarily even heard it. But it says that great quaking fell upon them and they fled and they hid themselves. 
they fled away in fear and left Daniel alone to take all of this in. Now, it says over and over through verse number nine, talking about a voice and a vision going on. After verse number nine, we're going to see that there is an actual physical presence that comes to Daniel. And that physical presence that comes to Daniel isn't the same as the vision that he's seen. The man that he sees here in these first verses, uh, clothed with linen and loins with gold and all these things, isn't the same one that comes and touches him in verse 10. We'll get to that in just a minute. But anyway, he's here alone. He's seeing this great vision. And what is the effect that it has on him? It says at the end of verse number, well, all throughout verse number eight, really, I was left alone. I saw this great vision and there remained no strength in me for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. So Daniel is presented with a vision of the holy God, and whenever this happens, all the other men flee away. Daniel has no strength in him. He falls flat on the ground, and it says that his comeliness was turned into corruption. That means that he saw himself as sinful. Everything that was good about him was no longer seen as good. All of his righteousness was filthy rags. That's what that means when my comeliness was turned into corruption. All my righteousness was filthy rags. And so that's interesting to me because a lot of people have the wrong idea of who God is and what he's like and what it would be like to be in his presence. Every time that we see someone come into the presence of God... This is the kind of response that we have. We see reverence, and we see that their sin and their weakness is made plain. Because people have the idea, the closer I get to God, the stronger, the more bold, the more zealous, the more uh, vocal that I'm going to be, as if, uh, as if we can equate someone being spiritual to someone being self-righteous, right? A lot of people have this idea that boldness and abrasiveness is a result of walking with God, and that's not all we see. We see instead that whenever someone is walking with God, that the closer you come to God, the smaller you are in your sight. The closer you come to God, the more repulsive your sins become to yourself, not the more self-righteous you become. That the closer you walk to God the more you're going to see your flaws and your sinfulness, not everybody else's. The closer you come to God, the weaker you're going to be in your own eyes rather than stronger. We see this here? What happens whenever Isaiah stands before God? He says, woe unto me, I am unclean and a man of unclean lips. And you remember how the angel gets the coal off of the fire, off the altar and comes and puts the coal up on his tongue and tells him he's cleansed? Whenever Isaiah the prophet comes before God, he says, woe unto me, I am unclean. I am undone. Whenever Daniel stands before God, he says, all of my comeliness was made corruption. I had no strength within me. And the reason I bring these things out, I think this is important for us to know that this is the effect that God's presence has on us. This is the effect that growth has on us. Not that we become proud, not that we become arrogant or that we become haughty, we become humble. We start not seeing ourselves as greater than what we are. And now this isn't the opposite. This isn't false humility. This isn't us saying, oh, I'm only a worm. I'm no good. I'm just filthy. No, it's not saying that either. He is seeing himself as he is. He's saying, in God's sight, I have nothing to offer. In God's sight, I have nothing to give. In God's sight, I am weak. And Paul found out, and whenever he tried to get his uh, thorn removed from his flesh, he says that in my weakness, Christ is strong, right? But we tend to get it the other way around, even in our Christian service, that we think that if we're spiritual, look what I'm going to do for God. Uh, look at how good I am. Look at how strong I am. I'm going to go out and I'm going to turn the world upside down, God. I'm going to go do this for you and I'm going to do that for you. And whenever Daniel came face to face with God, 
he was weak. And we're going to find out at the end of this chapter, and we'll have to hurry along, we're going to find out at the end of this chapter, in verse number 18 and 19, and verse number 16 as well, that repeatedly the Lord has sent a messenger, an angel, to minister to Daniel to give him strength. Okay? Daniel's not even able to speak. He's not able to stand up on his own. And the angel comes and picks him up, sets him on his feet, and he tells him to be strong, to fear not, to have peace. And God ministers that to Daniel. And it really, it's giving us a good perspective because someone as great as Daniel, the prophet Daniel, wasn't the one that God was sending to make his will be done, to see to it that everything was carried out the way that it was supposed to be done, to fight the battles and to do all of this. Daniel didn't have the strength. He didn't have the words. And God gives him, it says in verse number 16, it says, And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Because in verse number 15 it says that he became dumb. It means he was unable to speak. And so verse 16, one touched his lips, then I opened my mouth and I spake and I said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me and I have retained no strength. He says, I have seen these visions. I've understood God's will. I've understood what he's trying to do, what he's going to do and how he's working in this world around I've seen what we're going to look at here in just a minute, this spiritual warfare that was going on around him. He says, I've seen all of this and I am weak. I am just, I have no strength left in me. He wasn't even able to speak until God gave him the words to speak. You ever get to there where you just have no clue what to even say? It's like, God, uh, I don't even know what words to pray. God gave him the words. He opened his mouth and he prayed for strength. And then it says that uh, after he confesses that he has no strength, then there came, verse 18, then there came again and touched me, one like the appearance of a son of man, and he strengthened me and said, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be unto thee. Be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for thou hast strengthened me. And so the angel's getting ready to explain to him all these prophecies and give him all of these different things, but he had to first receive strength from God just to be able to do the work of God. You see this dependence that God's bringing back, how weak man is, how frail man is, how small our abilities are, and he's showing that through Daniel and how Daniel had to depend upon God for the words and for the strength to do the work of God. And so if we're going to accomplish anything, if we're going to do anything, it's not on our power. It's not on our strength. It's not, let me show you what I can do, God. It's, okay, God, here I am, a willing vessel. I want to be used of you, but I don't have the words. I don't have the strength. Strengthen me, guide me, and do it through me. And that's what he's doing here. And so we've been on both sides of this. What I want to get into now is in verses 10 through 15, really. This is where uh, the vision of God has, uh, I guess, in a way, faded a little bit. And now there's going to be a hand that touches him in verse number 10. And I believe this is an angel that is coming to him as a messenger sent by God to minister unto him to do what God wants in Daniel's life to reveal what God's desired in Daniel's life. And I'll explain part of the reason for that here in just a minute. But verse number 10, and behold, an hand touched me, which set me up on my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved. I like that in that chapter. It says two times that Daniel is a man greatly beloved of God. How is he greatly beloved? Because of the faith that he has in God. He says, okay, God, I just believe your word. I trust you. I love you. I'm following you. I'm, I want what you want. And God says, okay, I like that. He's a man after my own heart. He's one that, because the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
Daniel had faith, and it says he was beloved of God. Anyway, back to this. Verse 11, And he said unto me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee I am now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Notice in this that his strength hasn't been given to him yet. At the end of verse number 9, he was asleep with his face on the ground. He was overcome, overwhelmed, strength depleted. He had nothing left. And so the angel comes, speaks to him, says, get up, stand up. And Daniel standing there trembling out of fear, uh, out of being overwhelmed, out of fasting for 21 days, right? And so he's standing trembling. He is weak. He has no strength. Verse 12, then said he unto me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to thy, excuse me, set thy heart to understand and to chasten thyself before God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand uh, what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the visions, the vision is for many days. And so this angel has Daniel to get up, and he says, I know it's been 21 days, you've been fasting, you've been praying, you've been burdened down, you've been through it for the past 21 days. But let me tell you this, God heard your prayer whenever you first began to pray 21 days ago. God sent you an answer to your prayer 21 days ago. But there's been a spiritual warfare raging on for that 21 days, that even though God has sent the answer, that God has sent the message to you, that Satan has withstood that message. And so what this angel is doing at this time is he is pulling back the curtains, he's pulling back the veil, if you will, and he is giving us a peek into the spiritual realm that surrounds this earth. And what we see here in this battle that's going on, uh, most people would say was nonsense. Most people wouldn't believe. If you tell them that there is a spiritual warfare that's going on, whenever it's talking here and it says that the prince of Persia withstood him, he's not talking about a man. He's not talking about a literal prince because here's the thing. Could a man, a prince, withstand an angel? No, because there's plenty of instances where God sent an angel to wipe out an entire army in one night, right? Hundreds of thousands, one angel. How many times did uh, the children of Israel disobey God and God sent the death angel down and before they knew it, the multitudes were melting away. Uh, the one time David had to come and make a sacrifice on the threshing floor to stave off the pestilence that was there, that the angel was coming. In the nation of, uh, in the nation of Egypt, in one night, the death angel was to pass over and all the firstborn of not just the people, but even of the animals from the slave that was down in the gutter to the king's house was going to die, would there be a prince of Persia that could withstand an angel? No. And so we see that the, the word prince here is talking about someone who has uh, jurisdiction, someone who has rule or leadership over. And so as we're getting a peek into the spiritual realm here, we're finding that apparently Satan has a specific... Uh, demons, if you will, specific ones of his angels assigned to each kingdom, to each region. And so whenever we see in Ephesians chapter number six, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers uh, and spiritual wickedness in high places. What's it talking about here? It's saying that the men are just the mask the demons are wearing. That behind the governments, behind the kingdoms, behind uh, Putin, as he's attacking Ukraine, there are demons that are motivating these men, that they are merely puppets in a bigger spiritual battle that's raging. And so if we were to tell people on the street that now, even if we would tell a lot of Christians that there is a spiritual warfare, there is a battle going on, they would think it was foolishness. 
as I was reading and studying this, the example that was given, and I thought this was a good one, was back in the time of the Black Death of the Bubonic Plague. If you all have read that in history, I think it was around the 1500s, 1600s. Medical uh, technology wasn't what it is today. We were actually talking about this in science with the kids the other day about how even things that were cutting-edge science and medical 100 years ago are now completely disproven, right? Not accepted. But back during the time of the, the bubonic plague, they said that the disease, the infestation, it wasn't caused by the rats. It wasn't caused by the open sewage. It was caused by fresh air. That's what they said. And so people were combating the bubonic plague by locking themselves indoors, closing all the windows, uh, closing off their chimneys, and burning anything stinking and wretched and offensive inside their house to ward off the disease. And that was cutting-edge medicine, medical procedure back then. If you would have went to them and told them that this was caused by a virus or by a bacteria, if you would tell them that there was a microscopic organism, they'd say, well, what's a microscope, right? If you would tell them there's an invisible living thing that gets inside your body and causes these problems, they would say that you're crazy and they probably would have burnt you at the stake for being a witch, right? Because they didn't see it, they didn't believe it, they didn't understand it. But the Bible tells us here in Daniel that as Daniel was praying, God was working, but Daniel's answer to his prayer was delayed because the demon that was over the realm of Persia was withstanding the angel that was ministering to Daniel in Babylon. That's pretty messed up, isn't it? So it's like this divine wrestling match, chess match or whatnot. And so it says that this angel called for reinforcements, and Michael the archangel came, kicked butt, right? Took care of things there. And it says there that, um, I remain there, verse number 13, I remain there with the kings of Persia. And so these princes, these demonic influences, were trying to wreck God's plans and God's will. They were corrupting these men and these kings, and they were moving them in ways contrary to what God had revealed. They were trying to stop Daniel and his, his uh, prophecies and trying to subvert God's will. But God's angels, God's men, came through and saw to it that God's plan was being carried out. Okay? that makes sense to everybody? And so a couple good points to this, because we can't really get in-depth in spiritual warfare. Honestly, if we get too interested in it, it becomes a distraction and it becomes a stumbling block. But we know that it's there. We don't see it with ignorance, but we see that God is working behind the scenes in ways that we don't know. Uh, one story that I love in Scripture is whenever, I can't remember if it was Elijah or Elisha, I think it was Elijah, or Elisha, I meant, uh, was in the cave with his servant. It had to be Elisha because Elijah never had a, anyone with him, right? Uh, but anyway, Elisha was there, and the Syrians were sending their armies, and his servant was flipping out because the armies was coming, and he said, we're dead meat. It's two of us versus thousands of them. And as he's flipping out, Elisha is calm, and he prays a simple prayer. and says, open his eyes that he may see. And he sees all of the hosts of heaven gathered around them, all the spiritual uh, soldiers there ready to fight on their behalf, and all of a sudden he wasn't afraid anymore. Those are very real things. Those are things that we can't see, we can't tap into. We don't know that they exist. And it's things that the world today is playing with unwillingly, or unwittingly, I should say. Whatever they are dealing with the occult and with New Ageism and with mysticism and all these different things, that they are playing into the devil's hand. There is a spiritual presence on this earth. The Bible does say, greater is he that is within me than he that is in the world. Uh, it's not that Satan's, uh, Satan's forces, his powers, are ever going to uh, overwhelm or overrun or conquer that of God's. 
But what we're seeing in this passage and what we're what God is trying to get across to Daniel, okay? Daniel has been so burdened down by the things that he understood and the things that he didn't understand, by the things that was going on around him and the things that were going on in the lives of the people that he loved, and he was burdened and he was broken for it, and he was calling out to God. And it's a picture of how we try to fight all of the battles of this life ourselves, thinking that it's up to us. And we look at Daniel here, he had no strength. He had no ability. He was unable to do any of it. But then we see where the strength actually does lie. Whenever he called out to God, God had all of the forces of heaven available to assault the forces of hell. It only took two. You realize that in this passage, it, it, it accounts for the one that's speaking to Daniel, probably Gabriel, and Michael. They took care of the forces that was going on there. They stayed around a little bit extra to mop up their mess and to get the kings in order and continue God's plan advancing the way that it was supposed to. And then they came to talk to Daniel and fill him in on the future. And so how does that play into what we're going to see in chapters 11 and 12? Chapters 11 and 12, God's going to lay out before Daniel and he's going to say, this king's going to come, he's going to do this. This king's going to come, he's going to do this. This one's going to attack this one. This one's going to attack this one. This one's going to do this to Israel. Israel's going to be affected in this way. This, And it's going to go on and on, step by step, play by play. And whenever Daniel is thinking, it's up to mankind, it's up to us to figure this out, it's up to us to have the answers, God's peeling back the veil just a little bit and he's saying, here's what I'm going to do. And I have more than enough forces to see that it's accomplished. Satan is the one who's causing a lot of these wicked things to go on, but I'm able to take what he means for evil and I'm able to work it for good. And I'm able to make sure that my plans come to pass. Okay. So using another Bible example and taking a little bit of liberty with it. Okay. Reading into it a little bit with what we know about spiritual warfare here. Uh, go back to Joseph and to Joseph's life. Joseph, I already quoted him a second ago, what he meant, what his brothers meant to him for evil, God used it for good, right? What motivated the jealousy and the arrogance and the pride and the malice that the brothers had toward Joseph? You think Satan had anything to do with that? You think there were spiritual things working there and they sold their brother into slavery in Egypt? Potiphar's wife being willing to lie against Joseph, the prisoners forgetting Joseph after all that he had done. We look at that and say, well, that's just the way that people are. Are they motivated by a spiritual realm? Is there things that are steering people? Is there a demonic realm there that's bringing these things and giving these ideas and making and planting this maliciousness? I believe they are. And so all of those things, there were so many evil things that were going on, so many evil people that were working. But we still find Joseph getting exactly where God wanted him to be, becoming second in command in Egypt, preserving an entire nation alive, and being a blessing to the entire region and his family. And he was able to stand before his brothers and say, you... And all the forces of hell that has motivated these situations meant it to me for evil. And look what God did with it. And that's one of the things that I believe we need to take away from this passage in Daniel. Not that, oh, he prayed for 21 days. Oh, he fasted and he mourned and he... God heard him the first time. God was already in action. He was already making things happen. And he was more than capable of thwarting Satan's plans, of not allowing Satan to do what Satan would like to do, and making sure that things worked out exactly the way they needed to. Okay, does all that make sense to everyone? And so in the end of chapter number 10, Daniel gets a little insight into what's going on, and he can walk away from it saying, I don't know how God's going to do it. And I might see a lot of wicked things going on, but God can take the wicked. He can make it work together for good. 
And whatever he has said, he will do. And although I may be concerned with all of the trail between now and then, I know that God is going to win, that his plan is going to be completed, and that sin is going to be abolished, that righteousness is going to reign, and he is going to be the king forevermore. You may have had a lot of questions before that, but I believe after this, he's getting a good glimpse and say, in the grand scheme of things, before God, before his angels, man is weak. We don't have the ability, but we have connections to God who does. Our prayers do accomplish things. Our prayers do get God's attention. He does respond to our prayers. And so we see that God responds to the things that we pray. And we see that God responds also to the lifetime of faithfulness that Daniel had in working in his life and revealing things to him. So there's a lot of things that we're not going to ever experience if we don't trust God, if we don't remain faithful to him, if we don't live for him, if we quit. We're not going to experience these things. It's not that God's going to kick us out of heaven. It's not that he's going to beat us around. It's just we're going to miss out on blessings. So with all of that being said, the last two verses says, Then he said, Knowest thou wherefore I am come unto thee, and now I will return to fight the prince of Persia, and when I am going forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee what uh, that which, excuse me, I will show thee that which is noted in Scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael your prince. He says, we've got me and Michael, we're keeping things under control, we're going to make sure things happen just the way that God has revealed it in the truth of Scripture. He says, whenever we're done with Persia, then we're going to make sure that Greece goes the way that it says. It doesn't say this, but after this, it'll be Rome. Because God's already showed you, we're going to make sure it happens just the way that God says it would. God's got it under control. So, any questions or comments on what we've looked at tonight? Nothing at all? I've already said too much? Okay. Well, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is very much still a spiritual warfare going on. I believe that a lot of the the things that are going on today that people that people attribute to God are actually of Satan. Uh, the power, the prestige, and uh, things that are within even. A lot of religious circles, I believe, are energized by Satan himself. Uh, whenever people are going and you know, talking to the dead, and whenever there's miracles being done, I believe those are still Satan. He's still very much uh, involved in all these things today to mislead people and to uh, lead king, kingdoms and different things. Uh, I believe you go back to people such as Hitler and Stalin, Mussolini, and all of that. They are just the counterparts of Nero and Nebuchadnezzar and all those guys of the Old Testament. Uh, they still had uh, their prince of Persia, their, uh, I guess, their prince of Germany over there with Hitler, you know, those kind of things. It's God working, or not God working, it's Satan working, and God will shortcut all of Satan's devices, and he will make sure that things go. Uh, since I mentioned Hitler and everything, um, with him, he was trying to exterminate the Jews. Well, why would he be so adamantly against the Jews? They're God's chosen people. Satan would love to see the Jews exterminated. That would cause all of the prophecies and all of the things that we see in the last days concerning Israel, it would see those things become unfulfillable and they would be lies and God would lose, wouldn't he? And so Satan is attacking God's people, trying to wipe them out. And then what happened as a result of World War II? Israel became a nation again. It accomplished the opposite of what he set out to do. And so what Satan meant for good, or for evil, God meant for good, 
the Jews re-inhabited their uh, land. They've become a nation again. They are now ruling, or, or they're now uh, living there. I don't know how much they're ruling, but they're now a nation again. And much of that is due to what you see with Hitler and the hatred he had toward the Jews in World War II. And it may not have happened if it wasn't for Hitler. And so what Satan provoked through hatred and anger and uh, all those different things, God turned all that around and says, okay, we'll just put the Jews back in their land. Did the opposite. So, uh, I don't know, but I'd say Satan's tired of losing. He better get used to it, but he's tired of losing. The funny thing is, is how many times that it's already spelled out in the Word of God that he's going to lose and he keeps trying. So anyway, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Just thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you for this passage in here, Lord, and I pray that I've uh, been faithful to it, Lord, and that uh, these truths that we brought out from it are helpful and encouraging. And Lord, I, I know that there is spiritual warfare that's going on. But Lord, I thank you so much, Lord, that uh, it's not up to us to fight it. It's not up to us to overpower it, Lord. It's not that we're going to have the strength and the ability. We don't have to take on Satan and try to win. But Lord, that you are more than capable of fighting those battles and defending us and taking care of it. And Lord, even whenever it looks like the bad guys are winning, Lord, that you're able to take those things and turn them toward your will and toward your purpose. And Lord, that in the end, you're going to bring about the things that you have already prophesied and you've already planned. And uh, Lord, we just uh, wait for you to fulfill all things. Lord, we thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.